Hey everybody, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damian Pizzanti. And I'm Katie Gillespie. So, another week. Um, another week, another show. Yeah, what are we talking about today? So, our big focus for the day is on radon in the Evergreen Public Schools. Um, I've been doing some reporting recently on elevated radon levels in several uh, Evergreen Public Schools campuses. There's still more test results coming. This could feasibly not be the end of it. but um, So, but the news here is not that there is radon in Clark County, because we've known for a while We've it's known been that here. for a while, yeah. So, that's mm. date, that date back like 13,000 years, but um, but we're talking with Jim Bittner today, who is the spokesman for Cascade Radon, which is a mitigation firm down in the Portland area. They do work all around the Pacific Northwest, um, mitigating, testing, trying to figure out where radon is, why, and how to fix it. So... He'll talk with us about radon. Gotcha. And so he's working with the school districts, you said, to help yeah, them Cascade, get it out of the buildings. Yes. Cascade Radon is providing the mitigation efforts to uh, to get the radon out of the buildings. So. Gotcha. Man, this has been a story with legs for us. I mean, this is by no means the first time you've been reporting on this. No, I had a story that came out this week actually uh, mapping where the hotspots are for radon in Clark County uh, based on census tract. So mm-hmm. it's pretty it's pretty detailed. Um, and where the schools are on top of that map. So mm-hmm. you can kind of see, like, there's a lot of schools that are in kind of scary radon zones. So Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, we as a paper, before you and I got here, I know that other reporters had covered this, but I don't think anybody had touched on the institutional side of it and shown that, you know, these schools, these school buildings are full of it and steps need to be taken to get it out of there. So yeah. I look forward to hearing this conversation. Yeah, and uh, Damien was was out the day that I sat down with Jim, so it'll just be it'll just be me. So yep. I had a day off. Uh, then we're sitting down with Patty, and Patty. she's going to unpackage her upcoming Sunday story with us. Sort of following a recent tradition we've had here lately where we bring in a reporter to have them talk about an interesting, lengthy story that they are going to be releasing on a Sunday uh, Patty is going to be talking with us about the changing and the widening wealth gap between the, as I'll put it, the haves and the haves nots in Clark County. Man, you can get some really interesting and very revealing uh, data out of, you know, just out of the U.S. Census. And yeah, I think her it's all based on census data. Really, really will exemplify that. Yeah, for sure. So that'll be coming up. And then at the end, we'll sit down with Ashley Swanson like we do every week to talk about the uh, upcoming weekend in Clark County. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned. Should be a good be a show. show. All right. So I'm sitting down with Jim Bittner, who is the uh, spokesman for Cascade Radon, which is a Portland-based company that does te- radon testing, mitigation, and system design here in the Portland-Vancouver metro area and kind of all over, actually, right? So Exactly. We cover all of Oregon, all of Washington. Cool. So thanks for coming on, Jim. Thanks. Appreciate it. So the, the reason that we're doing this story is that Evergreen Public Schools recently announced that it had tested uh, positive for radon in some parts of in some uh, schools in the district. They're still doing ongoing testing um, in in its different campuses, stopping this week because of spring break. But um, so let's just start by talking a little bit about what radon is and why why people should know about it and why it's a concern. Exactly. Uh, radon is a, a naturally occurring gas. It's on the uh, periodic table of elements. It's not something that an industry cooked up in a sense. It's uh, real and it's related to the geology of our region. Um, the soil here locally has a, a fairly high uh, granite 
component to it uh, from the uh, Missoula floods that came down the Columbia River. That granite has a relatively high uranium content, and the uranium breaking down in the soil is naturally producing this gas. Well, that's all fine and dandy out in the open air, but when you put uh, homes and structures, businesses and schools, public buildings on top of that soil, it can be contained, and the uh, real concern then is with uh, higher concentrations and long-term exposure, it is a class A carcinogen. It's a form of radiation, and there's a very strong linkage to lung cancer. And so the idea is obviously that's bad, and we as an industry strive to reduce the levels in these structures to make them healthy and safe. Yeah, I mean, it's the leading cause of lung cancer among non-smokers, exactly right? right. Okay. Exactly okay. right. Exactly uh, right. The uh, Centers for Disease Control, the Surgeon General's Office, um, Cancer Society, Lung Association, they've all weighed in over the last 20, 25 years with research and data to suggest that uh, we see ranges of numbers from 22,000 to 30,000 uh, fatalities a year here in the U.S. linked to radon exposure and lung cancer. Wow, so those are numbers that people should be paying attention to. Exactly, for sure, so. exactly. Um, so you mentioned the Missoula floods. Can you talk about that a little bit more and like what parts, because there are certain parts of the county that are more, that potentially have higher levels of radon than others. Exactly. So. Uh, what would have been amazing to go back in time and to see this actually occur uh, would have been just phenomenal. But what do you want to imagine is going back during the last ice age, 10 to 12,000 years ago, uh, there was a location in uh, present day Missoula area of Montana where an ice dam would build up and every hundred years or so that dam would burst and the water that had been uh, stored behind that ice dam would literally scour the countryside, western Montana, northern Idaho, into the Spokane Valley, down through the present Tri-Cities area to the gorge and out to the ocean at Astoria. Well, en route, it was depositing this material that it had scoured from that landscape, which included all of this high uranium uh, granite from uh, the Rockies. And so literally, this this is an imported problem that has been brought via the Columbia River and then the Willamette heading down south all the way to Eugene in Oregon. Um, so that for us here in Clark County along the river in particular is the strongest relationship to uh, where we see elevated radon levels. But Beyond that, we also see other watercourses in the county, such as the Lewis River, um, that has also a strong relationship to elevated levels. And then beyond that, we see pockets that are scattered all about the county that aren't necessarily tied to those watercourses, but we still see high levels. That's why the whole darn county, in a sense, is uh, of concern. What are the what's the measurements for for radon? Mm -hmm. So the measurement is a picocuries per liter. It's a measurement of a, a volume of air and its radiation content. So it's very specific to what we do. You know, we don't measure this in you know liters or gallons or by weight. It's oh, that uh, explains why I'd never heard of a picocuries exactly. before. Exactly. So again, it's back to measuring radiation in a volume of air. And so EPA's national standard, the action level for uh, well over 20 years has been 4.0 picocuries per liter. So that's why a lot of folks, in a sense, are familiar with that number, have heard that number in conversation or in the media. And so that is, again, considered the actionable level. So if a structure, a home, a building tests at 4.1, then the recommendation would be to either do additional testing to verify that first round um, or to go ahead and move forward with mitigation to lower the levels. Obviously, the idea 
ideal would be to lower the levels in any structure to zero, but the reality is uh, that's not typically attainable. We remind folks that outdoor air, just walking down the streets here in Vancouver, is about 0.7 of a picocuri. It's part of the air we breathe, but that's a low, uh, dilute, non-public health concern level. But it's frequently what we end up with when we do mitigate a structure. We'll see levels on a par with outside. So we know that that's squeaky clean, and we drive away very pleased after that work. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with Evergreen Public Schools, mm-hmm. what you guys are, what service you guys are providing to them at this point? Exactly. So the school district had done some testing on its own in the past, and then they elected to have a, a professional company come in and test uh, all of the facilities. And so we provided that service uh, earlier this year. The levels that were found to be elevated um, are very localized. Um, It's not to say that yeah, it's things like a music room in a school. Exactly. One one shouldn't imagine that every school in the district is you know bad from side to side, north to south, east to west. Um, There were very um, localized. facility uh, spots that had these uh, elevated levels. And so they can be addressed no differently than a home uh, in terms of uh, engineering design. Uh, We have to get beneath the structure, draw the gas to a collection point, convey it to the roof, and then literally into the sky uh, so we prevent entry into the structure. And that's how we go about from an engineering standpoint to uh, uh, resolve this. How long does it take sort of from beginning to end of identifying whether or not there is elevated radon to the problem is mitigated. What's the typical timeline for Mm -hmm. uh, building the size of a school? Exactly. So if you have a school and you have a classroom or uh, a gymnasium, what have you, that needs to be addressed, again, the the, uh, parallel is to addressing a home. So we uh, install the system. That work may take a day or two or three, depending on the scale of the project, the square footage being addressed. And then we will be doing post-installation testing for a few days, minimum of 48 hours, uh, to, in a sense, gauge the uh, improvement. Uh, It can be that quick. Typically when we look at the data, we'll see levels dropping overnight once a system is up and running. Uh, The diversion is in a sense immediate. What's left in the structure typically has a a duration, a a lifespan of about three hours. So if you cut the source off uh, and divert it to the roof line, then what's in the building in a sense dissipates, the energy is uh, dissipated and you're not then replacing that uh, high radon level in the structure anymore. You've, you've created that diversion. So the, the turnaround, the improvement is very, very quick. Talk a little bit about the different tests that people can either do mm-hmm. themselves and then the tests that you guys provide. What makes them different? Um, what's exactly. accessible to people? Exactly. So for home testing, uh, folks are certainly encouraged. They can utilize a home test kit that they can purchase through the Lung Association or their local hardware store, for example. These vary in uh, shape, size, and uh, design, but essentially they're working on similar principles. Um, but you have two basic categories, short-term tests which is intended to be done for three, four, five days. That kit is sent off to a lab for analysis, and you then receive a report back from the lab with your result. A long-term test can be conducted from 91 days to up to a year. And EPA and the radon profession, we certainly put more credence and validity uh, weight behind a long-term test. Uh, Obviously, from a statistical analysis standpoint, it gives us better data. 
And again, uh, a homeowner can certainly purchase one of those AlphaTrack long-term kits at their hardware store, place it in the home, and send it to a lab for analysis. When you see electronic monitoring equipment in a home, uh, it's typically being done for real estate purposes. Um, it's always because they're typically time-sensitive situations. So we'd like to place a monitor in a home, test for a couple of days, come back with the agent, the buyer. We can print the data on site and have, in a sense, instant gratification. We have the information gotcha. available at that point. So we're not waiting for a lab's results to uh, come back. Um, it does give us some more analytical aspects in terms of hour-to-hour -hour data variations, um, temperature fluctuations, humidity, uh, things that we can look at in case there are any ties to how the HVAC system in a home is behaving and possibly influencing levels. But overall, it just gives us that uh, quicker turnaround. So, and and looking at, at some of these graphs, um, you know, I mean, they show peaks and valleys mm -hmm. of where radon is higher at certain times than others. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned already, the, you know, the HVAC system, but um, why is it not just a steady stream? It wouldn't be neat if it was just a flat line. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It always ends up looking like a seismograph uh -huh. like during an earthquake. Um, but there are a number of variables as far as how radon is getting into a home, the entry points, the influences of the structure, the, the physics of a home uh, fluctuate quite a bit. When somebody opens a door, closes a door, walks through the home, goes upstairs, opens a door, opens a window, closes the window, and so on. Because it's all about airflow. Right? Exactly. So it's it's changing uh, the pressure within the home, the, the draw, the vacuum that the home creates, and the influence on the gas beneath the structure. The soil is producing this gas at a fairly constant rate, but it's the entry into the home uh, and then the variables of the home above that can play uh, with the hour-to-hour -hour data. But we always will look at the average, so you could have data that swings from 2 to 10 and everywhere in between, and over the course of 3-4 days, the average may be 7.1. That's the number that determines whether or not uh, mitigation is uh, recommended at that stage. Gotcha. Um, and you and I have talked before about like like houses that have sort of trouble spots of radon, that houses the, where, where you may see higher levels based on whether or not they have a basement, what the foundation looks like. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. There, there's a bit of a perception out there that uh, certain homes are more prone to this issue, that if I have a basement, I must have radon, or if I have a slab-on-grade ranch-style home uh, in McLaughlin Heights, I will not have radon. And the reality is it's really back to the soil and the amount of this flood material that is deposited on your lot 10,000 years ago that you now have a home on top of is the biggest uh, factor. So you can have an all crawl space home with vents all the way around that was built in the last 15 years and have high radon levels. You can have a slab on grade home and have high radon levels. You can have a basement home with low radon levels. So it really does come back to the old mantra about just test the structure. Find out, rule it in, rule it out, uh, but don't make assumptions based on the style of home or that your neighbors across the street tested and they didn't have any, but maybe you do because we can see that sort of variability even in a, a given neighborhood or the same block or next door neighbors can have varying levels from one to the next property. 
Um, and you, I mean, you said essentially that same thing with these radon maps as well, right? Mm-hmm. That that whether it's based on census data or based on zip code or whatever, you know, the the county is shown as having certain hot spots where radon rates are tend to be higher. But that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that your home is going to swing one way or the other. It doesn't hold entirely true. It's a guide, and uh, we go back in time uh, to the early '90s when EPA had Clark County just as one color. It just was solid red, zone one, uh, high probability of elevated levels. They just didn't have enough data to break it out into any more detail than that. Um, More recent data collection has shown that there's a relationship to higher levels along the river than to the north, but still, as we work our way north, Battleground, Yakul, Amboy, and so on, uh, La Center, we still see moderate levels up there um, that some folks would say, well, you know, I didn't expect that. And, and that's true. Maybe they didn't expect that. But we also see uh, levels that are low in areas like Camas and Washougal, where we'd expect them to be uh, predominantly elevated. So again, there's a lot of vagaries to this, uh, a lot of unpredictability. But again, if one tests a home, it comes back low, we're tickled for them, we're happy for them. But if it does come back elevated, they shouldn't then throw their hands up in despair and say, well, uh, gosh, there can't be anything done here. It's a very solvable issue from an engineering standpoint. Yeah, so what is the mitigation process and what's the cost of a mitigation Mm -hmm. system? So when we look at a a typical single-family home, we're going to talk about drawing the gas to a collection point from the source, which is the soil beneath the home. So depending on the style of home, if we do have a full basement, we're going to want to go through the basement slab. We create a a small uh, incision, in a sense, a penetration through that slab to access the soil beneath. We're creating a small dry well. We call it a suction point, not a very elegant name, but uh, uh, think of it as a small dry well that we're going to insert PVC pipe into and then seal airtight at the slab surface. We're creating a negative pressure draw uh, to offset the slight negative pressure of the house. The home is drawing the gas out of the soil up into the living space. We're going to counteract that draw by creating a similar amount of negative pressure beneath the home in the soil. Uh, it's like a little teeter-totter or tug-of-war. Sort of creating it. that vacuum a little earlier. Exactly, than. exactly. And then we'll draw it to that collection point beneath the home, and then through our piping, we're going to vent it typically to the exterior. We also can route up through the home to an attic, for example. Uh, but we're going to still end up at the roof line with our vent pipe so we can safely expel the gas literally into the sky and not have it routed either into your next door neighbor's open kitchen window or your open bedroom window on the main floor. We do have to take it up to the roof line. For a typical single-family home here in Clark County, the cost of installing this system can range from, let's say, ballpark $1,600 to maybe $2,100. And that's all-inclusive. That's the necessary permitting, the services of electrician, parts, labor material. After uh, the installation is done, there's going to be a post-installation test uh, done. Um, So all of this has quite a bit involved in it. But uh, again, the end result is... uh, at least for our company, a, a perfect bag, batting record at this point. Uh, we've done almost 7,000 of these installations, wow. every single one of them successfully. So we have yet to be stumped by a home. So if somebody thinks that you know they're going to have the house that can't be solved, we'll take care of it. Um, we've had a couple of instances in Lake Oswego where we had homes over 500 Pico Curies. 
whoa. <laughs> Fairly <laughs> what high What was going numbers. on in those homes? <laughs> Just an awful lot of uh, granite beneath the structure. Fortunately, they were uh, relatively new construction. They'd not been occupied. Oh, gotcha. So that uh, actually felt pretty good that we caught it early yeah. during the uh, home inspection process. Yeah, do you guys, is, is, is it largely home inspections? Is that a lot of what you it's guys do? It's quite common okay. for this issue to surface during the sale of the home. Gotcha. Um, we still, on a day-in, uh, day-out, weekly basis, we'll hear from folks that will say that they've never heard of this issue, uh, but they're only made aware of it when they actually are selling their home, and the buyer, who's aware of this issue, then Requests tests test. it uh, yeah. during the inspection process, finds that the uh, levels are quite high, and they want it uh, made safe before they move their family in. Right. And of course, you can, you can feel for the sellers, because this is oftentimes the first time they've heard of this issue. Now they're quite concerned about uh, how long, have, how I long have I been breathing this, exactly. Uh, but more often than not, you know, they'll be uh, grateful because they'll now leave and move on to their, their new home, and they're going to have that one tested. Right. Uh, so it's, it's raised their the awareness in mouth. that way. Exactly. You know what, what surprised me a little bit in the process of reporting on this, um, on these schools, is that, you know, much like lead, there's no federal requirement for testing. There's no state requirement for testing. I Do you think that that's a, that's a problem that needs to be addressed? Well, or you know, Obviously, you know, from... Uh, Rate on mitigation uh, profession standpoint, you know, we would love to see it, you know, required for new home construction. We would love to see it required during the sale of a home, as opposed to it being a recommendation. Um, at this point, uh, across our country, there's uh, one. Um, caveat to uh, whether it's required or not. It's uh, related to, at the federal level, uh, any property that's uh, HUD-related, uh, 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 federally subsidized, low-income housing, um, if it's tested, say, during the uh, refinancing of the facility, um, and they find they have radon levels uh, that are elevated, they must mitigate. Gotcha. So that, in a sense, is uh, the, the one Of course, big... is there any funding available for that, or is it just on the... It's typically it's on the property owner, gotcha. management group, you know, gotcha. consortium, um, to take care of the issue. But there is a mandate at that federal level. Um, there is one county back in Maryland in the last six months that made radon testing a requirement during the sale of a home. But otherwise, it is recommendation. Um, would we like to see that change? Absolutely. Specifically with regards to new home construction, um, building code exists both in Clark County and Skamania County that homes be built in a particular way to uh, prevent radon entry. The uh, the bugaboo is is that there's no performance mandate so it can be installed either professionally by a radon firm or by the home builder contractor who might utilize their plumber to do this work and they might not necessarily be well versed in how to go about that the buyer and their agent then assume that well it has a radon system it has that radon element in it and therefore it must be safe then they don't bother testing it. Mm. Time and again and again, we find that levels are still high. Kind of get lulled into a false sense of security. Exactly. They make the assumption that, well, it has that in it. It must be doing its job. Well, it may be doing a partial job, uh, but the beauty of that design is that it can easily be amended to be more effective by simply adding a system fan, typically up in the attic, uh, to help its performance. But again, the bugaboo is that they frequently are not tested until literally the next time it's sold. 
it might be in seven years, eight years, 10 years, when that original owner puts the home on the market, that new buyer tests it at that point, and then again, the sellers find out that all along, it was high, mm -hmm. and they just kick themselves. Yeah. They really do. Well, and these little charcoal tests are like, what, 15, 25 bucks? 15, like, $20. Okay. You can get an activated charcoal kit, again, at the hardware store, Lung Association. Um, they're easy to deploy. You literally set it out in the lowest occupiable level of the home uh, for a matter of days, box it up, send it off to a lab for analysis. It's super easy. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on, Jim. We appreciate it. So test your home is the takeaway. It really is. That's that's the takeaway message. So now we're sitting down with uh, Patty Hastings, one of our venerable colleagues here at the Columbian. And she is going to be talking with us about a story that she's got coming up this Sunday. Um, and Patty, you can fill in the blanks here, obviously, much better than I can. But as I understand it, this is a good dive into uh, some census data about the, I guess, the financial situation of Clark County. Is that right? It's a story about the widening gap between rich and poor in Clark County. So I'm looking at income and the changes in income over time in Clark County and just kind of how, how that's all played out. I think that's really interesting because, you know, in the in the public discourse and around the media, you hear this conversation thrown around all the time, but it's always at a national level. So um, I'm going to be really excited to read this to see how these statistics boil, how these statistics are even reflected on the ground level here in our own community. Right, right. Um, Clark County does pretty much follow the, the national trend. I mean, this is a national story, incomes widening nationwide. Um, but it is really interesting to see specifically what's happening in Clark County. So without giving away the details of your whole story and, you know, keep preventing people from wanting to read it <laughs> when it comes out this Sunday, uh, what did you discover in your reporting? Uh, well, I discovered that um, our wealth is growing. We have a lot of people who are doing really well, earning uh, six figures or higher. Um, and that, that top 5%, top 20% in Clark County is growing. Um, you could attribute that to all of the big companies that are moving here, you know, Fisher Investments, Banfield, these are big companies that are um, high paying, they are offering high paying jobs. So, so that is a good thing. Um, but then also people who aren't doing so well, people who are the bottom 20% aren't really seeing any wage increases. Now, uh, did your reporting reveal what kind of jobs these people were doing at both ends of the spectrum, or does the census data not d dive that far into things? The census data doesn't really dive that far into things, and the census data also doesn't reflect uh, wealth. So there's a difference between income and wealth, because wealth would include um, people's uh, retirement benefits, um, all their, their assets like owning a home, owning cars, all their property. Um, and all of that stuff. So, so I got as deep as I could, but there's a lot that's uh, and that I couldn't find. <laughs> and income is just what you're making off of, like your paychecks and whatever jobs that you have. Is that right? Or? Right, right. For most people, income is just wages. Um, some people might also have social security or retirement benefits. That would also be income, or um, maybe someone owns a rental property and they get income through that. Gotcha. So this this gap that you're talking about, has it grown? Yes. Yes. Um, between 2006 and 2015, and this is adjusted for inflation, uh, our regional economist Scott Bailey uh, analyzed census data for me, and this is his findings. 
um, adjusted for inflation between 2006 and 2015, the bottom 20%, their incomes increased by 0.4%, which comes out to about $65. Whereas the top 5% in Clark County saw their incomes increase 12.6% during that same time period. So the top 5%, if we're looking at these time periods, top 5% in 2015 was earning $344,000 on average, whereas the bottom 20% earning a little less than $18,000. Wow. So that gap is definitely widening. Um, were you able to extrapolate any kind of data based on where these people are living? Are there certain neighborhood park pockets of Clark County um, that are sort of segregating as a result of this? Or, I mean, what were your findings geographically, if anything? Um, I didn't break it down by geography, uh, although I'd like to do that in the future. Um, We've done that before in the past where we've broken down income by um, by zip code. That was a story we did a few years ago, and that showed, you know, the wealthiest zip code. So in that case, this was a few years ago, Hawkinson was the wealthiest. Hawkinson, I'm sure Camas. Fruit Valley was yeah. the poorest. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I'd love to do that someday to look at where's the richest and poorest now. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that that has changed much. If anything, I imagine the segregation right. has probably grown. And, you know, this is uh, this is just, you know, my anecdotal perspective. I mean, I cover transportation and environmental issues, whereas you guys being the schools and the, like, uh, community reporter, I'm sure you guys see this firsthand in the types of, uh, types of people and institutions that you cover, especially you. Right. I, I imagine, like, school districts. I mean, there's got to be some huge differences between them. Yeah, that's true. When I was writing this story, I was thinking... Uh, Although I didn't get to include geography data, I was thinking about how, you know, there's a lot of wealth in Camus, there's all these new businesses coming to Camus, and Camus is kind of becoming a tech hub, tech cluster. Right. Um, but then just a few days, uh, about a week ago, I did a story about um, the point in time count, which is the annual uh, count of homeless people, and they had found a few people on Camus who are, you know, living outside. So it's kind of interesting, those two extremes, that people are living outside Camus and people are also doing really, really well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I didn't read your whole story, um, and I don't want to give too much away, but um, but I, I, I thought your lead, the first few paragraphs of your story here were really interesting, talking about at the State of the City Address, we have this, we had this announcement um, of this major tech firm that is moving from, that's coming from Silicon Valley up here to, to Vancouver to just days prior the point in time count. So it's pretty amazing, the contrast that you see cropping up here in Clark County and the rest of the country. So I don't know if you guys saw it, but in your story, I saw a lot of echoes of another story I read in The Guardian just the other day that was talking about homelessness in Silicon Valley. And it started with an anecdote of a woman who um, she's living in a tent right outside of the headquarters of Facebook. And from like her, you know, just poor little hovel could see a bunch of tourists like taking selfies in front of the big like thumbs up thing right out in front of their headquarters yeah so you know as uh, as much as we like to celebrate economic growth people get left behind in these things it's just right. yeah it's a reality uh, one of my sources was the economic policy institute and they created this list of metro areas and how unequal they are uh, in terms of, you know, what does the top 1% make and what does the bottom 99% make? And uh, the Silicon Valley area was 
pretty high up on that list. It wasn't like number one or anything, but mm-hmm. it was up there. So in your course of the reporting, were there any surprises? Did you walk away from this story with a different feeling than uh, you might have had when you started this? I, I didn't know it would be so extreme. Like I didn't realize how much some people <laughs> make here. I guess I hadn't really you know, thought about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then it's kind of, you have to take my, the numbers I provide in stride, because again, I don't have wealth numbers. So, you know, someone might be earning 300000 but then what, you know, consider all the assets they have and all the property and all those investments that they have that help them build their wealth. Right. Well, the bottom percent can't do that. Right. Well, and I see, I see you mentioned Ken Fisher in there who, you know, local billionaire has been on the Forbes top what 200 what what is the list it's the forbes 400 it's, forbes 400 it's a list of the 400 richest people and in he's America. like kind of in the middle of the pack on right. that list so and i think that wealth number i mean that's so important because you know if you're able to buy a home if you're able to buy a car if you're able to make investments you know that's i mean that's wealth that's going to compound in general well, not a car so much but but i mean that's a reflection yeah. of your financial health and your wealth potentially compounding with time and that's that's right. I mean, that continues to exacerbate that gap. Right, so. which is great if you're able to do that. Um, but as uh, Andy Silver points out in my story, for some people who are renting and their paycheck, a bigger, bigger part of their paycheck is going towards rent, they're not able to, you know, have a, a healthy savings account or, to, you know, save for a house or any of those assets that would help them build their wealth. Well, not only that, but you think about like all of the money you can't save uh, when you're poor, just like the sheer costs of being that way. You're not able to buy things in bulk and save money because you don't have enough cash to make the upfront investment for it. Right. Being Um, poor is expensive. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. You're probably driving a much crappier car that needs a lot more maintenance and upkeep or gets worse gas mileage. You know, there's just like there's so many like little nickel and dime things that if you're a low income person, make it really challenging to set aside any savings for yourself. What got you onto the trail of this story? Because I have to say, like, when I think of census data, I mean, I know it's great, useful information, but I only think about the census when they're conducting the census every year. So what what was the what sparked your interest in reporting on this right now? I, I am really excited for them to do the census <laughs> in twenty twenty. Like I'm like so excited for them to actually have a real census. Time. This is like the nerdy like this is like when reporters get really wonky because I think all of us love census data. So yep. even though like because year after year it's based on just like projections, right? Yes, so this and, is- technically American community survey data that comes from the census. So they survey gotcha. they survey households and use a bunch of other data to come up with as accurate of numbers as they can. But in twenty twenty, that's when they're gonna go door to door with the with yeah. their tablets and <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So um, what got you on the trail for this story? Well, I've seen the income numbers before. Um, you know, we write about income, we write about unemployment, and I just thought there was something more to explore there. And then lately, of course, it's become more of a topic, kind of these two polar, you know, news events, you know, lots of new businesses coming here and so many awesome things happening and waterfront development and wealth building in Clark County. And then at the opposite end, the debate over homelessness and the blight of homelessness in downtown and the struggle of low income people. Not to mention the conversation about this at the national level. So Right. So, yeah, just wanted to kind of provide a local angle to that. You sort of, when you were describing that, that really just put like an interesting 
uh, vision in my mind when you said that just the phrase wealth building because I think that is exactly what is happening in the city between these new developments and all these businesses coming here we are building mm-hmm. wealth but at the same time like I don't think we are this is debatable because the city is making some motions in this direction but uh, we as a society are not doing much to to like lift the bottom as high as, as high as we can does that make sense so I feel yeah. like we're not putting as much effort into addressing those the lowest of the low income among us but we are putting a lot of work into making the wealth the wealthy wealthier yeah there's a lot of things in the pipeline that could help lower income people uh, lots of apartments that are going to be developed um, they haven't dispersed some money yet from the Vancouver's uh, Affordable Housing Fund. Um, there's there's a lot of things in the pipeline and, and um, the increases in the minimum wage, how that's going to play out and whether that's going to impact kind of wages that are in the next income bracket. Um, that kind of hasn't played out yet, but it might. Well, and I think I think the thing with that is that some of the work that's happening to support the lower, you know, it's a lot quieter. It's much quieter sort of work, I think, than the the shiny new uh, tech firm that's opening up on the waterfront or whatever. You know, there's 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 less in the social in the social services community to really like make a big show of than there is a tech firm so for sure but i think at the same time there's also a lot less resources being directed towards that granted Mm. the resources going to it are increasing but you know like if you're going to compare the amount of money that's going into building the waterfront let's talk about like the amount of money that's going into uh, that is going to prop one that is going to address these like low income and homelessness issues i mean you know drop in the bucket comparatively speaking so your story is going to be coming out on sunday is there anything if people read it online is there going to be any um kind of explorable graphics or data or cool yes there'll be an interactive graphic uh, online where people can kind of play with uh the change in income over time for clark county washington in the u.s cool so will I be able to see in there like where I rank in the uh, in the that spectrum between rich and poor? Is that going to be visible for me somehow? Well, it it gives you so it's broken down by quintile, so 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 percent, um, and it gives you the average. So you could it doesn't give you a range, but it gives you the average of what people in those brackets make. So I can see if I'm in like the 40th percentile or this 20th percentile. Or yeah, whatever. you can kind of okay. get an idea of where cool. you're at. Cool. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Patty. All right. Thank you. All right. So we are sitting down, as always, with Ashley Swanson to tell us about uh, what's going on this weekend. So, yeah. Uh, we got a cute email this week uh, from somebody who was like, don't put Ashley in a corner. Weekends with <laughs> Ashley. So, so there that we is, go. Yeah. Sweeping up the end of the podcast. Yep. So what have we got? <laughs> uh, well, it is First Friday. This week we're covering First Friday in Camas, which is going to be spring into history. And the paper mill has just opened a brand new museum about the history of the paper mill. Mm. So you get to see kind of all like the... In- how it got started, why it got started in Camas, including like all the fun promotional stuff they would do, like people dressed up in like entire paper outfits and, and things. Um, and then you can go to different businesses and test your Camas history knowledge, um, participate in toilet paper tosses, and uh, even the the movie theaters kind of getting into it with a um, showing of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Was that like filmed in Camas? It wasn't filmed in Camas, but it does involve history. <laughs> 
So did Land Before Time. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it's true. I mean, so it's a, it's an adventure in Camus on Friday. And that's from uh, 5 to 8 p.m. And it's just, it's free and fun. And you get to wander around and, and discover new things, um, including artwork, too. Uh, same with downtown Vancouver. All the galleries are going to be turning out for lots and lots and lots of new art shows. I don't know if you guys saw the article this week about uh, rain coup that's happening. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, what that is. So a bunch of poets in the Downtown Association got together and they've basically put poetry or little haikus all over the sidewalks of downtown Vancouver. Um, they're only visible when it rains, though. Right, because it's like some kind of like hydrophobic paint. Mm-hmm. Is that the idea? Okay, yeah, so cool. it'll show up on the sidewalks when they're wet. And uh, if the weather holds out and it's supposed to be kind of rainy, this will actually be a good time to go see them because they'll be visible. Yeah, it's not often that there's an event that you're like, oh, I hope it rains. Right. But- <laughs> So they're having a reception for that on Friday, and then a bunch of the galleries have really interesting art shows, like um, Boomerang, which is the coffee shop, is hosting the uh, Southwest Washington Watercolor Society's uh, spring show. So um, 200 pieces of art, all done in watercolor. It's It kind of boggles the mind of how photorealistic sometimes watercolor can be. Mm-hmm. And just, it's, it's a really cool medium, and it's a really cool way to see um, a bunch of local talented people and, and their art. Um, also, Angst Gallery is hosting um, a sculpture, a group sculpture exhibit. It's called um, Sculpt uh, Expressions in 3D. So, cool. yeah, because April's kind of a, a sculpture heavy month. There's even the International Day of Sculpture on the 24th, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Saturday is Critter Count. So, if you like herps, you're, you're in herps. Wait, what is a herps? Um, it's kind of a shorthand for, so herptology, uh, which is the study of reptiles and amphibians. Oh, okay. So instead of saying like frogs and snakes. No. Uh, so Critter Count, it's the 17th annual Critter Count, and it's a, a way to kind of participate in science and, you know, find frogs and, and play with tadpoles. And So is it a day just to go out and like harass a bunch of toads <laughs> hanging out at the local <laughs> pond? Is that what happens? Well, it, it basically it's kind of a way to get um, the community involved in field surveys. So... Um, Reptiles and amphibians are good. Uh, we're always kind of trying to monitor their population because it's a good way to see how the local environment. They're indicator do. species. Yeah. Um, so this way, they've done it for 17 years of counting the population at local designated sites. And so you can go and, and get some training and go out with a biologist and kind of see what you can find and, and play a giant, you know, where's Waldo with frogs and snakes and and other things. This is a very science heavy weekend up weekend with Ashley because we had hydrophobic paint. We have indicator species, so this is a good good weekend to see some Yeah, do science. Bill and I would be very proud. <laughs> do some science. It's fun. Um so yeah, and then afterwards so the, the critter count is happening from nine to noon. Um, on Saturday, and then if you stick around at the Water Center, you can see some live critter shows because they'll be entertaining the kids with animals and reptiles and amphibians. Who doesn't love reptiles and amphibians? It's true. They're cute. Yeah, a lot of people don't, but those people are really silly. So how do you get involved? Where where are you supposed to go for this? You just go to the Water Center um, before 9 and and sign up, and they'll give you everything you need to know. Just make sure you dress for the weather and maybe bring uh, a lunch or two. But, yeah. So show up like 845 with some probably some waterproof boots, maybe some rubber boots, Mm -hmm. coat and a hat, and a Mm -hmm. Something to count all the frogs and 
toads and whatever yeah else. they'll provide they'll provide most of that but as long as you kind of outfit yourself for the weather and and you're prepared to do some science yeah sounds awesome mm-hmm. how about sunday uh, or are we still on saturday well we could go to sunday it's up to you you're the one with the, you're the one with the uh hot list of happening events uh, well um there is if you if you want to get your Easter bug out early. There are a few early Easter egg hunts happening this week. If uh, you have kids, awesome. It's true. Um, so St. John's uh, Lutheran Church is hosting one at 11 a.m., rain or shine. So if it's nice, it'll be outside. If it's not so nice, it'll be inside the church. Um, but yeah, it's a community Easter egg hunt. So wait, they're having the Easter egg hunt like a weekend early? Yeah. Oh, really? Why are they doing it a weekend early? Just to, like, separate themselves from the, the crowd and be cool? Is this the one and only Easter egg hunt of this, week, this Sunday, or are there others, too? It's the only one this weekend, but um, the city of Washougal is hosting an extravaganza on Wednesday. Excellent. Yes. Uh, what happens at an extravaganza? Well, at Washougal's, they'll be um, hiding Easter egg in, Easter eggs in straw bales and kind of like a little kid maze. Um, and it'll be divided up by ages and it'll take place at Reflection um, Plaza. Uh, so, And that's from 3 to 5.30. So kind of an early start. Or at least think of it as like a, a good practice run before, before Easter weekend. Good idea. And then um, the Mountain View Christian Center up in Ridgefield is also hosting one on Wednesday as well for, at 5.30. And that will feature, I think, 12,000 eggs for the community to go hunt Whoa. through. God, that is so many eggs. That's, that's not the most. Uh, like the is Easter list I'm building for, for uh, the 15th and 16th. There are a lot of eggs to be found on that day. Mm. A lot of eggs. I hope they're the plastic kind and not like the hard-boiled kind. I believe so, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Sunday, Sunday's interesting because the only kind of big event that's happening is the um, Blooms to Brew Marathon. Uh, which is a huge marathon that happens up in Woodland, in the Woodland Bottoms, and you get to run past the um, tulips that take place at the farm and the irises and the lavender, and it it all takes place around Horseshoe Park. Mm. Or Horseshoe, yeah, Horseshoe Park. Um, Horseshoe Lake Park, I think is the name. Sounds like a terrible race if you have allergies. It is, but it's really fun because they offer a bunch of different levels, so you can do sort of a half marathon, you can do a team marathon, there's relay races and, and beer and root beer and, and things at the end. And it is also a Boston Marathon qualifier. But it's kind of a little bit too late if you're just finding out about it now to participate. <laughs> but um, spectators so, are still welcome. So to, there is no same attend. day registration. Uh, not really. No. Gotcha. Um, you could you could try to sneak in at their fitness festival that's taking place on Friday or Saturday at the uh, Woodland High School. But otherwise. You know, you could just go and, and cheer on, cheer people on. Well, I think runners who are really into that kind of thing are probably aware of a schedule like weeks, months in mm-hmm. advance. Well, and we did uh, publish a big running list a, a couple weekends ago. If you're if you're itching for something this summer to do, um, and you want to kind of aim for a big goal, we have a big old list of local Clark County marathons and fun runs and races. So. Cool. Good deal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think people sign up for Boston Qualifiers Day of. <laughs> Let's see what's going to happen. <laughs> that would be pretty amazing, though. <laughs> oh, how was your weekend? Oh, I just decided to qualify for Boston. Whatever. <laughs> and then I'm just going to drop one thing on the end uh, for for next Wednesday, the, the 12th. Uh, science on Tap is back at More the Kiggins. It's back at the Kiggins Theater, and it's one that I think will probably sell out. It is... Um, 
inside the feline mind. <gasps> what? Yeah. Wait, what day was this? The 12th. The 12th. Wednesday. Wednesday. Yes. Um, so if you ever wanted to know why cats like headbutt or hiss or like flick their tails, this um, lecture is for you. Um, it's a suggested donation of 8 to $10. But like I said, this sold out in Portland when it was over there for their Portland Science on Tap. Um, this one will probably sell out as well. So get your tickets early. Awesome. Can you buy your tickets online? I believe so. I think, I think you can get them online. That's your weekend. Cool. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a good weekend. Yeah. All right. That's a wrap. Yeah. We are done with this episode. So next week, we're going to talk about a few things, but I think the uh, one of the hottest topics around Clark County right now is the new Ilani or... Ilane, I Ilane. think. Ilane. All right. I haven't seen enough of the commercials to know for sure, but they're advertising it, so... I feel like I'm wrong on most things, so I'm going to default to your pronunciation. Because <laughs> then I can be wrong. <laughs> so. So, so the casino, after years and years and years and years of work and legal battles and, legal and just various complications is finally opening this month yeah. uh, so our the co-workers is making it happen yeah finally um, the the big news out of, out of that casino project is that the Supreme Court just decided not to hear uh, the case that was brought against the very existence of that casino so well, not just that but the reservation it sits yeah in, right? yeah um, so I mean now it's like all all stops have been pulled and, yeah that was the last roadblock really yeah. for opening so yeah um, and to be clear like I'm sure you guys probably probably know just as well as we do that they have been working diligently in spite of that in spite of the ongoing uh, the pending case right yeah. so um well and apparently to to you know to their benefit i guess so oh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely so we're going to bring in adam Littman and troy brennelson uh to talk a little bit about some of the work that they have done reporting on the casino uh and just get a sense of what things are going to look like up there um mm-hmm. Michael Jordan's got a steakhouse. Yeah. So there's gonna be something like sixteen restaurants opening up inside it. It's a massive facility. It's huge. Yeah. So stay tuned because we're gonna bring you that and more as we always do here on Clark Talks. If you want to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at Columbian.com, and then you can subscribe to this wherever you find podcasts, yeah. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, mm-hmm. uh, and don't forget the podcast is always posted at Columbian.com on our homepage every Thursday. Yeah, and thank you guys very much who have been reaching out to us. Uh, we always appreciate the feedback, good bad, or otherwise. So if you got something you want to say to us, yeah, don't hesitate. If you got hot tips, let us know. 